morning, good morning everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe, just spinning around. Welcome to the other side of midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when tonight, or this morning, we're going to talk to you about several major breakthroughs, all occurring simultaneously overlapping that could, in fact, give hope to humanity itself. Now, I know that kind of sounds maybe a tad pretentious, but you know that my position and the position of most of the regular participants in this show, our, our family, our faculty, is that the only reason we're doing <clears throat> excuse me, this stuff with space is because it's the only thing big enough to change what's going on on planet Earth tonight. The human race is tearing itself apart. It is in, in incremental increases destroying future hopes for millions of people. And the only way that I have perceived that this could change would be, and this goes back now decades, you know, 40, 50 years, would be if we could confirm that which has been the most jealously guarded secret in the modern era of humanity, which is that the human race is not all by its lonesome on this little spit of dust, this planet, but is part of a much, much, much larger galactic family with all those implications, including a whole bunch of strangers, i.e. aliens, that populate a galaxy which is teeming with life. And the only reason that this is not accepted, you know, policy and understanding on the part of most of the planet tonight is that there has been an assiduous, consistent, dogged, no-holds-barred determination on the part of a minority who just happened to run the planet, to keep this knowledge, this foundation, this paradigm-changing reality from everybody else. And it's now beginning all around the edges and sometimes much closer to the center than the, uh, the so-called deep state would, would, would prefer. It's breaking apart. There are signs of spring buds all over. There's evidence of real astonishing truths about to be revealed and then confirmed. And this ranges the gamut from UFOs to other dimensional entities to a extraordinary physics, which could be the key to not only solving the world's most horrible problems, but in fact liberating humankind with simple practical commercial applications, which again, as part of the big picture, have been kept from us. So yes, tonight we are destroying the world through greenhouse gases, etc., etc., and the threat of thermonuclear war. Let's not forget that. So into this maelstrom of darkness, there are bright little beacons which are now springing up like the U.S. government suddenly sanctioning official offices, both in the military 
and in the civilian space realm to look into the idea seriously with science, with with citizen science, with networks, with protocols, with AI. The fact that we are not alone. And there are increasing numbers of breakthroughs which are all leading in the same direction. The, the trend curves are in the same direction. The only very serious question tonight, looking at what's going on in Ukraine and is in, in, in Gaza, is are we going to have enough runway to land this plane before other things take over and we basically cannot make a safe and soft landing? That's part of why we're going to talk about some real intertwined breakthroughs tonight that on the surface may look very, very separate, very disparate, very unconnected. What I'm hoping we can do tonight in our conversation with people who have new data, people who will present opinions, people who will have a background of expertise to comment on the implications of what we're unfolding, I'm hoping as part of tonight's conversation you will come away with an understanding that unless we make real breakthroughs on this front, unless we open the closed box, the illusion that Earth and Earth societies are all alone, things are not going to change. Certainly, they're not probable, probably going to change in time. And that's the key message of tonight. There is a clock ticking. There is a fuse burning. There is an apprehension that things cannot go on much longer the way they are currently going on now. So into this backdrop, I want to introduce all our new listeners, and we have quite a few. Uh, one of my guests a few weeks ago, Matthew Bailey, <clears throat> our AI expert, <clears throat> excuse me, he has his own network, and we reran his show several times. He thought apparently of all the interviews he's done, and he's done a lot, uh, that ours was right up there, so he asked permission to uh, broadcast it over his network. And of course, as I'd hoped to happen, you know, the curious people have come over from his network to our network. And so tonight we have a whole bunch of new listeners, and I want to thank every one of you. I promise you, you will not leave tonight or this morning disappointed. This, what we're talking about tonight, can potentially change the world for the better. It's not enough just to change the world. You've got to change it in the right direction. You've know, got to have the right sign in, in, the, in the equation. Okay, uh, for those of you who are new, you want to go to um, something we have on our website, uh, theothersideofmidnight.com. That's where you should be. Click on tonight's banner, which says, Did Apollo 12 find another Stonehenge on the moon? Part 3. That will take you to the guest page. Right under the guest page, you will see in yellow letters to listen to the show. And then it says guest page, and then it says fast links to items. This is our section of the show website, which we call Radio with Pictures, where we post our guests, experts, whoever, post interesting reference material <clears throat> that you can either look at during the show or you can look at later or when you join Club 19.5, you can look at to your heart's content. You want to click on my name where it says Fast Links to Items. That takes you to my section tonight of Radio with Pictures. 
And we're going to lead again tonight with the story that has been leading for something like six weeks now, which is the horrible Hamas assault on the state of Israel on killing 1,400 people, give or take, in a murderous blitzkrieg of terror against civilians, not military, civilians, people just living on kibbutz there by the border with Gaza. And what has happened as a result, which has been this incredible, all-out, relentless mass bombardment of Gaza to where something like 11,000 people have died. And even if you think that every one of them deserved it, the numbers prove you wrong because there's something like 2.2 million people in Gaza. Admittedly, Hamas contains about 30,000 fighters. Let's say 50,000 just to, you know, inflate the numbers. That means that out of the 11,000 people, how many percent, one and a half percent maybe, have been Hamas fighters, the rest are all civilians, and half of those are children. This is a global morality catastrophe. Never in the history of world warfare since World War II has civilized society sanctioned the mass civilian bombings that were conducted by this nation, by the United States, on the side of right in World War II of Japan and, of course, Germany. But we have grown up since then. There are rules of warfare. There are, there are treaties that have been signed. There are documents and covenants which have been agreed to in writing in front of, of institutions like the World Court. No longer do we approve of civilized society responding against an act of terror by simply trying to obliterate, to exterminate the population from which the terror has come particularly when millions of people are held in chattel, in slavery, by this relative handful of, of Hamas fighters known as, uh, well, known by the name Hamas. So nothing on this front appears to be changing. The story I have up there tonight is that we are considering, the U.S. is considering a tactical military response to try to get these 200-plus hostages that were taken on the uh, 7th of October. And unlike other situations where we knew where hostages were, I'm thinking of the Iran crisis back in the uh, uh, 1970s, with Jimmy Carter as president, who, by the way, is in hospice tonight and is um, on the edge of the doorway. It wasn't since the Carter administration that we've tried to rescue, and that did not turn out well. You know, desert what was it, Desert One, the name of the code name of the rescue operation did not turn out well, and all of those hostages were kept in one place in the U.S. Embassy, <clears throat> where we knew where they were and why there was serious efforts to mount a, a, a rescue uh, operation. Currently, Israel and the United States and every other nation sharing this high-level intelligence in NATO and in the Western Alliance, they have no idea where these hostages are. They've been dispersed. Uh, we've heard reports over the last couple of days that uh, two of them were found in uh, buildings on the grounds of the uh, largest hospital there in northern Gaza. But no one 
except I think for one a few weeks ago, has been found and rescued alive. Uh, the others, I think three or four, have been exchanged per negotiation. And there is developments in, in the realm of negotiation for somewhere between 100 and 200 of the remaining hostages. But this story coming out and saying that we're considering separate tactical military plans to simply go get them, I'm not sure that's going to encourage the negotiations in a very uh, uh, rapid or enlightened fashion. Uh, who knows? Was that a leak? Is that? I mean, there's so many cross currents swirling around this, and it's all pointless because, again, measured against the standard of what's outside this planet, what's in the solar system, what's in the galaxy, what's going on out there in terms of civilized, extraordinarily advanced societies, of which we tonight have no formal part, that knowledge would reveal in an instant that we, we, meaning Jews and Arabs and Muslims and whites and Hottentots and Japanese and Native, everybody on this planet share so much more in common against the unknown. And the fact, and we have to face this very for, you know, for, for squarely, that maybe some of those folks out there are not very nice. And maybe they have designs and intentions on the earth. And that gets into an extraordinary convoluted you know, discussion, which, of course, we're not going to have time to do tonight. But it's against that backdrop, particularly if in the model some of these folks, these ET folks, are in fact family. And you know where the worst fights on earth seem to occur between families. Maybe, just maybe, it's not all light and airy, fairy goodness forever in terms of finally joining the galactic community. You know, we, we, we should keep all our options on the table. But that does not mean we should not move forward with revealing the truth because the truth in this sense will really make us free and give every human being the opportunity to reassess their relationship with their fellow humans and with or against the unknown. In that vein, there were two major developments uh, in the last week. One took place uh, uh, yesterday morning, and the other took place you know, a few days ago. One is very, very well known and is being kind of dismissed tonight with very cheap and misleading headlines as a failure, whereas the other is so unknown that I had to really dig for a backstory on why it's so important and why it deserves to be part of our conversation vis-a-vis what we found on the moon tonight. And they are my items number two and three of Richard's items in Radio with Pictures on the guest page. So, item number two. At the crack of dawn this morning, six o'clock, 6.03 here, and two hours later, further east, the Starship launch took place under SpaceX Aegis, Elon Musk's uh, space company, from Boca Chica, Texas. And unlike the um, headlines, it didn't fail. It, 
it succeeded brilliantly just at the end of the period where the uh, agency, SpaceX, was trying to gather data, that is, as the starship looped around the Earth and then re-entered over Hawaii, <clears throat> something happened and two commanded self-destructs were sent or were in, in, inculcated by the onboard computer software and both vehicles, the first and the second stage of the Starship, after launch, about seven, seven and a half minutes after launch, were destroyed. But not before every mission parameter, every goal, save for the reentry, was achieved. The most important of which, admitted in the literature, which um, SpaceX had published, you know, weeks ago, before this launch attempt uh, this morning, was that they would they would actually undertake a procedure for staging, that is, transferring momentum from the first stage booster to the second stage payload in a seamless fashion, what's called a hot staging technique, where instead of shutting down the engines on the first stage, then disconnecting the two stages and having the engines on the second stage light up and move the... Uh, spacecraft away from the first stage, which is now, of course, falling back to Earth, they would keep the engines burning on the first stage while they ignited the engines on the second stage, and they basically would not be reducing momentum during the stage transfer. You might say, well, <clears throat> why would they complicate a mission doing something that has almost never, ever been done? Uh, in the history of spaceflight, and doing it in the process of testing two ultimately recoverable vehicles. And the reason is that when this is all worked out, the benefit is that you get to take about 10% more payload to orbit than if you do the staging in the normal conventional manner. So that test this morning, that the two stages, you know, separated in a hot staging technique, worked brilliantly. The first stage backed away, tumbled, was orienting itself for its return to Earth. They were going to do a soft landing on the surface of the Gulf of Mexico and then allow the thing just to sink. The Starship, the payload, the second stage of the, of the test, was to almost, not quite, but almost go into orbit to where it became a fractional orbital system, an FOS, meaning it would coast just below orbital velocity all basically around the world and then re-enter uh, about 200 miles north of Hawaii, which is almost, you know, 180 degrees or 360 degrees from where it, you know, left, which is Texas. And this would be a, a, a test of the navigation system, the reentry tiles, um, without going into orbit, where if there were problems, let's say that it blew up, all right? If you blow up when you're in orbit, it takes a long time, relatively speaking, for the pieces to come down, and they become of hazardous uh, import to other satellites in low Earth orbit. Whereas if you create a FOS situation, fractional orbiting system, 
then you know that even if you have an explosion, <clears throat> the pieces are going to come back to Earth and re-enter and probably sink in some ocean and thereby not clutter up low Earth orbit. In other words, being environmentally friendly. So that's the test profile that was designed by Musk and his company, the brilliant geniuses there at SpaceX. And it all worked except for the final part of re-entry because about a minute before the engines were supposed to, you know, be um, throttled down on the second stage and then it coast around the world, uh, it blew up. And it blew up because something told its onboard self-destruct safety system to blow up. What's kind of weird, and what has not been covered by any of the rather hysterical and very wrong headlines, this mission did not fail, it succeeded, and then both vehicles was destroyed slightly earlier than they had been planned to be destroyed by dunking them in the ocean. The data that SpaceX learned through all the successes of getting to where they got in this, in this mission so outweigh the negatives of not succeeding on the reentry, because, of course, that can happen on the next third try. And at the rate at which Musk builds hardware, depending upon the bureaucracy of federal regulations and permission by the FAA to do a third launch, we could be seeing a third launch of Starship and the Super Heavy Booster by... Christmas? Maybe between Christmas and New Year's? That's technically feasible because the launch pad, which had to be radically redesigned and new things installed to keep it from, uh, you know, basically, you know, being destroyed by the launch forces of the rocket, which happened on the first test back in April, uh, survived unscathed. In fact, there was less damage to the um, Starship launch pad in Texas than there was to the Cape Canaveral launch pad after the launch of Artemis 1. No elevator doors were blown, you know, cockeyed. No, you know, major hardware was scoured off the launch decks. No wiring had to be replaced. No extensive, you know, change of structure. Um, it basically survived unscathed, which is a huge step forward because that meant that there was no environmental degradation and thereby there was no uh, backlash against uh, the environment, fish and wildlife, which had to exceed to the uh, limits put on Musk after the first disastrous uh, test when everything went uh, cattywampus. So overall, this was a stunning step forward in developing a democratized private enterprise way of sending spacecraft and civilians to the moon which will usher in when these untrammeled, uncensored eyes on their Twitter accounts, i.e. X, which also is owned by Musk, tweet out all around the world, good God, there are ruins all over the moon. That became a huge, major step closer tonight than it was this morning. Regardless of the stupid, frankly, I believe, uh, propagandish, Headlines, which are designed to keep us in prison, to keep us from ever knowing that there's other folks out there and certainly knowing anything about our heritage, which is on the moon. Closest outpost of stunning 
real human history when we did astonishing godlike things is right next door on the moon and somebody does not want us to know this so one of the possibilities and we're going to know in the next uh, you know few days if not hours was the starship mission in fact sabotaged how could that have happened suppose some agency outside of SpaceX or NASA managed to broadcast on the uh, destruct system radio frequencies that are used as a backup from the ground to destroy the vehicle if it wanders off course and is going to land in the middle of Houston. What if that set of frequencies and codes was taken over by, oh, what's, that's just, you know, well, eh, the Chinese? Maybe. See, I don't go there automatically because I think the Chinese are in the same boat we are. Somebody bigger than both of us does not want us to verify what's out there. And that model we've developed in other shows. Or it could have been, you know, an X factor, pun intended. The fact is that will all come out with analysis of the telemetry. But there are things about the mission which at least raise the possibility that this is one investigation that should be explored, pursued, even in areas where you would not, at first blush, think you want to go, which is sabotage. Wouldn't be the first time. And look what's riding on it. Now, the other mission, which you've heard nothing about, is in my item number three. It's been planned for a couple of years. Uh, It's been placed into orbit by a private enterprise space company called Rogue uh, Space Systems, I believe. Very, very apt title, Rogue, meaning they're mavericks, meaning they're willing to go off the reservation. And there's another company, and you can find all this out by clicking on item number three, Controversial Quantum Space Drive in Orbital Test, Others to Follow. Because on November 11th, after two years in preparation, with the aegis of DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, the kind of far-out, blue-sky, crazy scientists attached to the DOD, they commissioned a study five years ago of a professor claiming to have basically a hyperdimensional theory. Don't you love this? Out of which a very practical set of technologies could, in fact, be designed, produced, and tested. And one of these technologies, actually two, are two different variants of a reactionless space drive using no fuel, no ions, no no propellant of any kind, just hooking into hyperspace, again in our model, and using it to basically move from point A to point B in three-dimensional reality. And that spacecraft, a CubeSat measuring the size maybe of a you know, shoebox with solar panels, <clears throat> is in orbit around the Earth tonight and has two different, slightly different versions of this incredibly revolutionary hyper-dimensional space drive waiting 
to be tested in the next few days. Now, here's where things can get really, really interesting. If those tests, which are upcoming, turn out to be successful, this spacecraft will raise its orbit. Uh, It's orbiting about halfway between Earth and the altitude of of the space station at the moment. It will raise its orbit by something like 60 miles. There is no natural known force, including outgassing, solar wind, atmospheric inflation, magnetic fields, gamma rays, whatever. There's nothing if that spacecraft, when they flip the switch and turn on the drives and it changes orbit by 60 vertical miles, there's nothing that can account for such a stunning, radical, paradigm-shattering test than a real hyperdimensional space drive. Now, you couple that breakthrough, which is about to happen in a few hours or a few days, with what we saw from Musk this morning. You put those two technologies together and you have a human race finally, if all this works, with the ability to send human spacecraft to the stars in the first 20 years of the 21st century. And on that note, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight here for this Saturday evening, Sunday morning on uh, November 18th. The, uh, the other major story that I want to uh, briefly go through before we get into our panel and our guests uh, is uh, the death of Frank Borman in the last few days. Frank Borman kind of presaged what we're talking about tonight because he led as a uh, NASA astronaut in 1968, in December, across Christmas of 1968, he led us through a Cree Apollo astronauts, uh, Jim Lovell and um, uh, Fred Fred Hayes, I believe. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It was it was. Um, oh, I can't remember the third astronaut. It'll come to me. Anyway, it was historic because it was the mission which was supposed to not go anywhere near the moon. It was supposed to basically stay uh, in Earth orbit after the successful mission of Apollo. 7, which had come years after the catastrophic fire on the pad in 1967, um, which had destroyed the uh, Apollo spacecraft in test and had killed uh, three astronauts, Chafee, White, and um, uh, Grissom. So, this last week or so, Frank Borman at 95 uh, died, but he will be forever remembered as the guy who led this increpid crew of three astronauts to orbit the moon across Christmas of 1968, where they all read from Genesis. And of course, we now know that there's a lot more to Genesis per Stan Tennant's work than has been even imagined by anybody before. And we're going to weave these two threads of the larger story together in the coming weeks, as you will, as you will see. But anyway, I wanted to give an homage to Frank Borman, who uh, led this increpid crew against some serious biomedical problems. The technology worked fine, but uh, Borman himself apparently got incredibly space sick, and uh, you never would have known it. I was that was my first stint at CBS as science advisor to Cronkite, and of course I was riveted by the mission and following, you know, millisecond to millisecond and delivering Cronkite all kinds of materials and. It was Borman who led the crew, and he was the one who was ill, and they were very good at keeping secrets even back in those days, so we did not know until after the mission had returned. That mission was so historic at so many different levels. In fact, we probably should spend a night talking about the amazing heads-up that the Apollo 8 mission gave us back when we were so damn dumb we didn't know what we should be looking for. Anyway, um, our guest tonight... I'm looking at my list here. Uh, we'll be joined tonight by Maria Wheatley, who, of course, is our resident um, archaeologist, dowser, uh, expert on ancient um, monuments, sacred uh, hyperdimensional monuments scattered all over the earth, starting with the uh, epic granddaddy of them all, Stonehenge, there in southern England. She's with us, um, Greg Ahrens my friend and colleague who has been working with me for years on several projects, uh, Air Force veteran. I gave him the task once we had figured out that we were dealing with a real lunar Stonehenge, and we'll get into how we know all that in a few minutes. Um, I gave him the task of finding out where the damn thing was pointed. 
because well we'll get into the details of that when we when we get into those details we've got keith morgan with us of course we've got kinthea and um ron gerbrun our resident generalist is with us and and he has some really good questions we had some conversations off the air earlier in the week and i said save it save it for the show because you know that's one of his major roles is to think things and ask things that nobody else thinks of and uh, he's not going to disappoint so let me give a little background to all you new listeners who have come over from uh, matthew bailey's net Uh, we did a show with matthew uh, a few weeks ago and the response was so extraordinary that we ran it a couple of times and he requested that we be able to run it, allow him to run it on his net. So we have a lot of uh, Bailey fans. Why Why is that important? Because AI, which is what you guys kind of hang out looking at, and what we're talking about, the verification of real intelligent uh, beings other than us hovering around the Earth, visiting the Earth, i.e. UAP, spacecraft, UFOs, or having left monuments architecture in our own backyard all over the solar system my opinion now is basically political as opposed to scientific is that nasa is going to pitch the ball on whether this is a crackpot theory or its reality to ai and ai when it comes up with ruins all over the solar system is going to be blamed or credited with Oh my God, look at this amazing technology which saw what mere humans were not able to see for 50 years. And politically, my prediction is that most people will buy it. They will be satisfied. And uh, only a few people will care about the real history and the fact that there were a group of us lonely pioneers crying in the wilderness, pointing at the ruins decades before an AI basically said, they're real. Anyway, with that as prelude, let's go to my uh, fifth item tonight, which is a misspelled Apollo 12 lunar rover tracks. We, we can take out one, one P. Uh, this is an overview taken from LRO, which is NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which put into orbit back in uh, 2009. Still going strong. Uh, some years ago, after taking initial images of the Apollo landing sites, which, of course, everybody, you know, was wondering, well, if NASA didn't land on the moon, how could they put a spacecraft in lunar orbit and take pictures of of the flags on the descent stage of the lunar module and footprints and experiments and all that, other than by faking it? So a few weeks ago, as a counterpart to the image in in number, number five, the Indian space program, the Chandrayaan-2 lunar orbiter, looked down from lunar orbit, this is several years ago as a matter of fact, and took pictures of all the Apollo landing sites. Now you got to understand, the cornerstone of U.S. government policy, expertise, founding documents, constitution, etc., it all comes down to w- one phrase, secret sauce, which is, checks and balances checks and balances so the wisdom the fake news out there is that nasa never went near the moon that the moon landings were done on some sound stage you know uh, in arizona or nevada i encountered that bizarre weird lie 
decades ago when I was literally covering the Apollo moon missions for CBS News, and we all moved from JPL, uh, I'm sorry, from, from Downey, the uh, prime contractor for Apollo, up to JPL to cover the uh, Mars flybys of Mariner 6 and 7 occurring in the same week as the Apollo 11 landing. And I found there that NASA was squiring around a guy. Uh, nobody knew him. He was just a guy. But he got this kind of tender, loving treatment from the NASA personnel. And he was handing out little flyers saying, basically, as Apollo 11 was falling home, we never did this. It's all being done on a soundstage. And so NASA itself gave birth during that news coverage to the lie we never went to the moon. All documentable in uh, uh, my, my book, uh, uh, Dark Mission. So, against that, what's the evidence that we, in fact, did go to the moon? Well, as long as you've got the um, uh, person who's indicted for the crime, i.e. NASA, taking the pictures claiming that it's not, you know, indictable because it didn't do the crime, it really did land on the moon, no one's going to believe you. We live in the era now, it was bad years ago, it's horrible now. Nobody believes anybody about anything mainly because they don't have a process for figuring out what's real and, and what's not. We're going to get to our How Do We Know What We Know show at some point. You know, I'm, I'm working on the right guy. Anyway, into this unending paradox, this how do you determine whether NASA's telling you the truth when they, in fact, on a whole bunch of other stuff, have demonstrably lied, not just for decades, but for 50 years half a century since they were born, they've been lying. I mean, I couldn't imagine back when I was with Cronkite and, you know, encountering NASA at a high level for the first time, why all the press had this, uh, you know, kind of weird side of the mouth uh, reference to the NASA acronym, N-A-S-A, as standing for never a straight answer. Even then! And that wasn't about the good stuff, it was about the, the dumb stuff. So, in this light, modern claims by NASA, oh, look, we got pictures of all the stuff we took to the moon, are going to go over like the proverbial lead balloon. So, into this controversy comes the Indian space program. A completely separate government, a completely separate form of government, because uh, Modi is a dictator, a completely separate space program, completely separate from, among other things, NASA, all right, they have funded their own missions to the moon. Hell, they've now landed unmanned spacecraft near the South Pole of the moon. If any checks and balances exist in the global space program, it's the Indian Chandrayaan-2 spacecraft looking down as it flew over the various Apollo landing sites and photographing hardware and footprints and flags and experiments and at the Apollo 12 site a lunar Stonehenge. So if you look at my item number five that's the kind of overview that's the surveyor crater about 650 feet across in which uh, um, surveyor three landed back in uh, 1967 and then the intrepid uh, lunar module of Apollo 12 
landed on the rim, commanded by Pete Conrad, uh, and the lunar module pilot was our familiar favorite painter, Alan Bean, landed on the rim, walked around, took samples, took lots and lots of pictures, visited surveyor, clipped off samples, and then went back to the spacecraft, took off, and came home. Never once, according to any official record, realizing that about halfway between the position of the lunar module and that crater on the right in the, in the big crater called Block, about halfway between there is this stunning circle. Look at uh, item number six, which looks for all the world like an aligned stellar and or solar uh, observatory like Stonehenge which takes us to item number seven. Item number seven is a comparison. The image on the left is from uh, uh, Lunar Orbiter. No, I'm sorry. It's from, it's from yeah, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, um, taken at a <clears throat> particular time of day where the circle, except for one large object, does not really show up. It does if you really enhance it and zoom in. But on the right-hand side of this comparative diagram, you can see a blueprint of the famed Astrodome. I did not pick the Astrodome by accident. You know, astral lunar, astral football, Astrodome. Now, why I did this is because if you look at the surveyor crater there on the left, and you look at the Astrodome on the right, the Astrodome is 760, no, 720 feet in diameter. Surveyor crater is about 650. If you account for the outside edges where the ground appears to be disturbed, they're about the same size, same scale. So the Apollo 12 astronauts were wandering around in an object on the lunar surface about the size of the Astrodome. And in that <clears throat> object on the ground, in that feature, they did not, according to the footprints, find anything interesting they weren't supposed to find. Now, if you look carefully at my uh, item number seven, you'll notice with this lighting and this scale, the surveyor crater, which is the depression in the middle of the left-hand side of the frame, it's not round. It isn't a crater. It's a square, and it's tilted to the left by about 40 45 degrees, maybe 30, and the points of the square <clears throat> are pointed directly up and down, or east and west, give or take, like they were aligned with the north rotational axis of the moon. Our model for what we're seeing is that, in fact, this is not an impact crater. This is the buried foundations of a sunken building where the building itself is gone, the foundations underneath have collapsed and caused this very large stadium-sized depression oriented about 90 degrees to the current uh, orientation of, of uh, lunar features in the vicinity there in what's called Surveyor Crater on the moon. Okay, let's go to number eight. This now is an enlargement of the uh, Chandrayaan-2 image um, over which have been superimposed on the left a surface image taken by 
the astronauts of what we call the lunar time capsule, which is the object in the upper right corner of the of the frame with the red arrow pointing toward it. And then you got all those green lines. Well, if you look at the lines and, and the objects that they pass over, you can see that they mark out the alignment of four or five separate objects lined up aimed toward the lunar horizon. Even the uh, object aimed uh, across the center of the circle, which is there where the green lines and the red line cross over that white object with the long shadow, are aimed toward the biggest other thing on the landscape, which is that object in the northeast or to the upper right with the very weird shadow. All right, getting out of that, you want to now go to item number nine. Uh, Ruggiero, our friend Ruggiero Kalo, who's going to join us in the second hour, took my enhancements of that object, the so-called time capsule. <clears throat> he traced out its actual uh, geometry, which you can see there in the uh, sketch on the right, and it turns out to be a figure with one, two, three, four, five, six sides, two, I'm sorry, four equal to each other, and two longer ones in an extraordinarily symmetric configuration, which when then you look at number 10, which is the same sketch and geometry of the mystery object on the left, and on the right, this is a photograph close up taken on the surface by Alan Bean. We know the frame number. We know the magazine he used. And it, it's obviously a building. And it looks geometrically identical with short sides and long sides to what we see in the overhead. It's the first absolutely unequivocal building, I would say, we have discovered as part of a larger story or a larger architecture on the moon. All right, let's get out of that and go to number 11. This is a photograph, and the number is right there in the, uh, in the caption, AS-1249-7224. The AS-12 is Apollo Saturn 12. 49 is the magazine, the film magazine. 7224 is the frame number, the, the photograph number. You click on that, it looks like you're looking at a really interesting high-res image of a crater on the moon with uh, kind of weird stuff in the sky. Get out of that. That's the full frame. Go to number 12. This is now a close-up. Along the horizon and in the sky, there are decidedly non natural looking features. So then you get out of that and you go into my number 13. This is now a close-up of a few of those features on the horizon. And they do not look like rocks. They are symmetrical. They look like structures. They look like architecture. They look like artificial, but they don't look like rocks or boulders. And that sky, well, of course, that's the bright and scattering of the dome on the near side of the moon, which stretches all over the moon, and which Alan Bean himself, although he didn't know what he was consciously looking at, when he was asked to describe in a story in Newsweek what the skies over the moon, the pitch black, vacuum dark skies that are supposed to exist over the moon, look like, 
He said, wait for it, a pair of black patent leather shoes. And what do black patent leather shoes look like? They have glistening, specular highlights, reflections, just like the stuff in the sky over the Apollo 12 site on the moon. And then that brings us to number 14, which I'm going to wait for, because what I want to do is introduce the problem and the potential guy with some provocative solutions and a huge controversy. His name is Greg Ahrens, as I said, former Air Force veteran, engineer. I tasked with using the existing uh, programs that are available on the web to look at these stellar alignments because my model, going back to item number 8 and 9 and 10, is that the reason you can draw a straight line across the center of the circle to this larger object sitting at the edge of the frame of number 8 is because it was some kind of repository, time capsule, that was designed to be seen against a backdrop of stars or celestial objects rising over the moon at that point on the horizon, 63 degrees, give or take, from the north, when this Stonehenge on the moon and that alignment were created and built. And I was hoping that he would be able, with the modern forensics of planetarium software, which is anchored in the latest software that governs how NASA flies all its missions to the moon and all over the rest of the solar system. You can't get more official and more credible than that. By reeling the clock back in the computer to the putative 100,000 years that the um, labeling says the program is now capable of simulating, we could determine from that celestial alignment what that alignment was aimed at and when that thing that it was aimed at was rising over that northeast horizon of the moon and it would tell us when and that might, as uh, Paul Harvey used to say, give us the rest of the story. So, Mr. Ahrens, come on down and explain to our good folks, and we'll pick it up after the top of the hour break, exactly what you tried to do, what you found in all of its complexities, and where we should probably go from here. Oh. There you are. Unmuting always helps. Okay. You know that's going to be on everybody's tombstone? Right, he I forgot or, to unmute. He or free, she forgot to unmute. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I clicked it, and then and then I started, and then you heard, you spoke up and said, oh, hello, and I accidentally clicked it again and muted it. But anyway, I, I'm on now. Okay, we're uh, close to the top of the hour. Yeah, so just tease. Mercilessly, uh, tease everybody. Mercifully. Yes. Uh, okay, well, yeah, when I first saw the... Uh, the picture of the stone circle or well we don't uh, know it's stone we don't know it's stone they are objects in a circle and on the the best images that i can i can extract from from bean's surface photography they look geometric they look like they were sculpted or they're pieces of machinery or they may even have 
things on them, like like uh, you know artwork. But we're at right. the edge of knowing, so we, let's just talk about them as objects. They're not stones. Okay. So, but I see this. I see this circle of of white objects with one in the middle and the rest of them pretty much in a circle. And I, you know, I've seen work on Stonehenge and other cir circles on the earth. And, you know, there's this, this some of them are theorized to be, uh, like you said, observatories or showing the direction to where different stars rise or set or where the sun rises or sets and uh, eclipses or, or uh, equinoxes or whatever. Well, let me, so, let me, hang so, on, let, let me stop you there. Um, I found personally when I first went with NASA <clears throat> and then went out to Chaco Canyon, which is an ancient Native American site, uh, <clears throat> Anasazi site here in New Mexico, there, uh -huh. are, there are alignments on the surface at the canyon showing stars and lunar and solar rising. So this is not just limited to cultures in Europe. It turns out cultures all over the world built sight lines, like, like a huge rifle where you have a foresight and a backsight. And they use stones right. to mark that angle, and it was designed to flag something important in the sky for, you know, kind of complementary reasons um, of, of time and symbology and worship and all that. But this is a precedent well established in all cultures on Earth. And so when, when I found the circle, like you, I said, oh my God, it's got to be an alignment thing, like a calendar or a clock, to tell us when it was done right right yeah and like like you've had that guest on that, uh, up in massachusetts or someplace where there was a or new hampshire yeah dennis stone america's uh, America stonehenge yeah right yeah and that's the same deal they found uh it points to eclipses etc yeah so so yeah so that was and then i've you know worked a a few times using Stellarium, and uh, so I thought, well, yeah, we'll measure the measure the angles and start looking up and see what we can find. And basically, uh, how I got involved in it. Okay. Well, where are we? Sixty seconds. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, well, one and, of the, one of the things you found, which I thought was so interesting, is that NASA is advertising through this commercial company that this software basically is official. It's exactly the same software that NASA uses to go places. And yet they say in their, you know, instruction manual, but you can't really count on it before a few thousand years, right? I think, yeah, I think the latest one, uh, they said before uh, 13,200 uh, 13, years ago, or, well, actually, more than that, because counting the years from from zero to to twenty twenty three. But anyway, yeah, to minus thirteen two hundred on their counting on the negative side. Mm. And as far, well, I wrote it down. Okay, well, hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this okay. morning is Greg Ahrens. We're talking about how do we date whoever built this amazing thing on the moon. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>